to guide our time. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your inspired and errant word. We pray that you would speak to us, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And that uh, as your message goes forth, may you give wisdom to Steve and to me to speak what is true and right. Father, we praise you and honor you. Guide our time, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. <coughs> Unity within God's church is actually commanded. It's a command of the Lord. If we are Christ followers, we are commanded to do everything we can to have unity that is honorable to God within the church. You think of Jesus in the high priestly prayer. In John 17, we essentially have Jesus' last will and testament. This is the last thing that he utters to the Father that we have recorded before he goes to the cross. And in that prayer he says this, I pray, <coughs> excuse me, I pray that they may be one even as we are one. And I pray that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Christian unity is so important that Jesus says that the element of the Trinity that binds the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that causes perfect unity among the three members of the Godhead, is the model of what unity ought to be like in the church. And I've got to step back and ask myself, is that true in my life? Do I sow discord among the brethren, or do I work as far as it is dependent on me to live at peace one with another, as Romans writes. Unity, it's a big deal to God. As Steve and I thought about unity, we thought we would share a few accounts that are true from stories we've heard among the brethren. One church, a small one, almost split when a deacon actually bought a dirt devil vacuum. Obviously, that deacon was a wolf in sheep's clothing. If he had really been godly, he would have bought like a dirt angel vacuum. <laughs> True story. Another church had a major argument over a budget variance. Now, this is a six-figure budget, and the variance was off by a stark 10 cents, and it caused a major argument within the church. Eventually, one church member got up and pulled a dime out of his pocket to balance the budget. So clearly, a variance of 10 cents on a half-million-dollar budget is much more important than church unity. There's another church I know about that at one time had a number of plastic plants up on the front. You remember when that was the thing? So they had all these plastic plants, and over about a year and a half, or excuse me, a decade and a half, those plants kind of broke, and the six-foot trees were like four feet, and, and all the leaves were weighed down with dust because apparently it is absolutely nobody's job to dust plastic plants. And after about 15 years, some individuals finally gave it the proper burial that it deserved in the garbage. 
And a few people, I guess they were the donors, were upset. Because if you don something or give something to the church, the church is obligated to keep it till the rapture. <laughs> oh, wait a second. That illustration happened at Highland. We're going to move on. We are definitely moving on. <laughs> One more example. During a congregational meeting at another church, there was uh, topics that were unwisely allowed to be raised live from the floor. And this, of course, caused a lot of just discussion and what the church decided to do instead of allowing these topics to be raised from the floor is that if these topics came up, they would table them, assign them to committees for resolution. Well, at one such meeting, the custodian of the church came to the meeting and said, I have a leaky faucet in the women's restroom that needs parts to be repaired. So I need approval for the repair of this faucet. Well, the Roberts Rules of Order sticklers spent the next 20 minutes arguing about which committee it ought to be sent to in the first place. Finally, one docile man stood up and said, just fix the faucet already. Everybody with common sense agreed with that, and a 10-cent washer fixed the issue in this church. Unity is a big deal to the Lord. Again, we need to step back, each of us, and ask the hard question, are you, I, we building unity? For so many of you, the answer is yes, and we are thankful for your model. I want to pick up and read of 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 13, where, frankly, this is a church not known for unity. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Let's set the scene. The years are AD 52, AD 53. Paul is on the second of three missionary journeys. He's traveling throughout Asia and Europe. He is planting churches. In fact, I believe before his death, Paul will be responsible for planting about 60 different churches. And what is unique about this one is Paul not only plants the church at Corinth in AD 52, but he stays on as their pastor for the next 18 months. But then that call to plant churches again strikes his heart. He gets on a ship. He crosses the Aegean Sea. He goes over to Turkey and plants Ephesus. Before leaving the church at Corinth, he appoints some leaders, some elders, at best, they've known Christ for 18 months. They don't have a lot of spiritual maturity, but it's the best that he can do. Now, whether it is these young elders who are at fault or the congregation that is at fault, we don't know. But if you read through First and Second Corinthians, you know that disunity erupts and erupts and erupts over again in this church. This is where verses 10 and 11 come in which Steve will talk about. So why is unity such a big deal in the church today? I don't know, but I bet we can spend hours arguing about that answer. Amen. <laughs> if you were to 
poll the general public about the things that normally characterize Christians and a Christian church, being unified would not likely crack a top 10 list. Now, I want to um, remind us that this problem was not just a contemporary one. It's a problem that plagued the early church as well. And that's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 1. And I want to just reread verses 10 to 11. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So Paul addresses this issue of unity as a first order of business because he is fully aware of the problems and the issues that bickering and backbiting and arguing can inflict on the bride of Christ. And he wants nothing to do with that. And we have to know that people quarrel by nature. Even from birth, our sin nature hardwires us to look out for number one. And there can't possibly be unity in a setting where every single person is vying for their own rights, vying for their own desires and preferences. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, James puts it this way. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So what James is saying is that fights and quarrels are the result of people contending for their own desires, for their own interests, and it causes the kind of division that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now the word division literally means to tear apart or to rend. In contrast to that, when Paul says that you ought to agree with each other, he's pleading with the Corinthian church to agree with each other, that agree literally means to be knit together as a church. And that's what he's asking them to do. When I was a boy, my family traveled to see the sequoia redwood trees in the state of California. And as impressive as these giant trees are, as I learned more about them, there was something that was even more impressive to me as I was learning about them. You see, the roots of these trees, these giants of the forest, they only reach down about 10 feet into the ground, not nearly deep enough to support a tree that can extend up to 350 feet tall and weigh up to 1.2 million pounds. And so instead, what I learned is that the roots of these trees extend out laterally and they intertwine, they knit together with the roots of the surrounding trees in that grove. And so because of this interlocking grove effect, these trees are able to withstand wind and floods and they can live to be great, great ages. Now it's the same for Christians today. God has called us to lock arms with one another around the things that God desires. And when we do that, incredible strength and incredible growth can result from that. The key question then becomes, what are those things? How do we define what it is that we're unifying around? In just a few minutes, Pastor Jeff will be discussing the meaning of Paul's passage about following Paul himself or Apollos or Cephas or Christ. But without stepping all over the verses that he's about to discuss with you, because that would certainly cause disunity up here. Yes, it would. (laughs) It's worth noting that each one of these 
teachers was accurately and responsibly teaching God's word. They were. So what that tells us is that the things that the Corinthian church was dividing over were non-critical, non-essential things. And that's the thing that caused division among them. They were dividing among things like a personal allegiance to one of these individuals. They were dividing over who baptized them. Now, Paul was neither impressed or pleased with that fact. He might have puffed up his chest and said, people are saying they're following me, but he didn't like the fact that people were saying, well, I'm following Paul or I'm following somebody else. You see, Paul is somebody who recognizes that in ministry there are no heroes, there are no celebrities. In fact, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul discounts, he discredits the work that he and Apollos have done And he redirects all the glory to God for the spiritual growth that occurs. Now, what Paul says instead in 1 Corinthians 1 is that we ought to be united in the same mind and that we ought to all agree. And what this literally means is that we all ought to speak the same thing. Now, what this doesn't mean is that every Christian ought to be a cookie-cutter version one of another. Not at all. But what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 later on, he tells us that each believer is given unique gifts to serve the body of Christ and that we ought to use those unique gifts to serve in our various capacities. So we have unique gifts and various capacities. But the unity Paul is talking about instead is one of doctrinal unity. It's a maintaining of the centrality of the gospel that saves us and the word of God that guides us and leads us in our lives. A group of people who are fully surrendered by faith in Christ alone and who are committed to linking arms together, to being unified around the Great Commission and about using their gifts to serve well and to follow the word of God together, that group of people is called a church. And together, it's an incredible means of growth for each one of us and an incredible means of strength as we unify together around these things. I think we can all probably agree disunity happens when we take non-essentials, when we take our preferences and mandate that they be exactly what everyone else agrees on. It happens very easily. It could happen quite easily in a church like Highland. Steve and I just walked out of the tradition service. We could fight over the type of worship style or instrumentation or volume or the song sung. We could argue over things like which version of the Bible. That one always blows my mind. English speakers have several hundred translations, and rather than praise God for this blessing, we fight And sometimes we say, if it's not this translation or this translation, you're obviously a spiritual loser. It doesn't make any sense to me. The same thing with studies or the type of schooling. Can you imagine how many countries would love options like virtual school, home school, public school, private school, and giving us the right as parents to choose what is best for our family? But then sometimes we go further and we act like our choice is the right choice for everyone. And we take a blessing from the Lord 
and we turn it into a curse. Or maybe it's end-time predictions on the end-time timing mechanism. Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, the angels in heaven, they don't know. The Son of Man doesn't know. Only my Father in heaven knows. But tell you what, in the 21st century, some of us think we know. It's an amazing thing. Now, we're not talking about a lot of end-time aspects like heaven and hell and the return of Christ. We're talking about a timing mechanism, and yet people divide over it. They divide over aesthetics. They divide over what you ought to dress in when you come up on the platform. Although I know many of you appreciate our hipster senior pastor. Well, amen to that. (laughs) Yes. I remember, true story, that uh, a couple, I don't know who they are, so if it's you, I apologize. But a couple came to traditions, and they liked Highland, and they sent word back to me that if I would promise to wear a jacket and tie every week, they would start coming to Highland. I don't really know where they worship. I'm expecting it's not here. These are taking secondary issues and our preferences, and they're mandating it. We need to ask the question, is it written? And if it's written, we stand on it. But if it's not, and if it's our preferences, we show grace, as so many of you do so very well. I think one of the big reasons that Highland is a healthy church and is unified as a church is because of our commitment to preaching and teaching God's word. You see, Bible centrality is a great equalizer among believers. It's been said that the the ground at the foot of the cross is always level. The fact is, is that every one of us is a sinner in need of a savior. The Bible says that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We all desperately need the atoning work of Christ in our lives. And God himself is not divided. He's never confused, and his word never contradicts each other itself or disagrees with itself. In fact, as Pastor Jeff mentioned a bit ago, the very word Trinity, broken out, literally means a tri-unity or a three-in-oneness, a unity of three. So the church ought to be a place where people unify around the true north of God's word. That's what we collectively set our eyes on, God's word, rather than treating the church as sort of a, a smorgasbord of personal hills that we choose to die on. Unity becomes possible when the church, ranging from the staff to the incredible volunteers that we have here, to the voting members, to the elders, when all of us collectively agree with and commit to operating from the same playbook, God's Word. There's one last thing I'd like to mention from these two verses before we move on. There's good reason to believe that Chloe's people that gave the report to Paul in these verses are individuals who are actually outside of the Corinthian church, not people who are insiders of the Corinthian church. Now, we don't know whether or not these individuals were believers or whether they were not believers, but the one point stands that the very thing that they noticed, the most prominent thing that they felt obligated to report to Paul was this lack of unity within the church. That's the thing that they noticed more than anything. And what's unfortunate is that even today, some Christians are so much more well-known for what they stand against rather than what they stand for. 
They air their personal grievances in public meetings and in online forums. And I think along with Paul, we would be right to sort of cringe at the thought of the world standing outside the doors of the church, shaking its collective heads at the disunity happening inside the church among the very people who are called to reach out with the love and grace of Jesus. So these two verses, I hope, are a reminder for me and really for all of us to keep our unified focus on the gospel and on the true north of God's word. And I want to just thank so many of you who have been great examples to so many of us of the gracious, biblically-centered lives that you've lived. Thanks, Steve. I want to continue on and read verse 12 again. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that is Peter, or I follow Christ. Can you imagine? This is the Corinthians' pastoral staff. The first pastor is Paul, and then it's Apollos, and then it's Cephas. Man, did you draw the short stick. I mean, I can't believe this this pastoral staff. And yet, there's still disunity. Some of us know what this is like. I remember growing up, and in the church I grew up in, we had two pastors. We had Chuck, who was older, wise, seasoned, and we had Mark, who was youthful, ambitious, lots of energy. They were a perfect combination, one with another, and I think they probably worked well together, but unfortunately, the church didn't function that way. And what began to happen is this. People would walk in and Chuck would walk up on stage and some people would say, amen, we're finally going to have some meat around here. Chuck's preaching. And the next week, Mark would walk up on stage and a different group would say, oh, amen, we're going to have some energy, not that boring stuff anymore. And that's the way the church began to function. And you know what happened? Chuck left and Mark left. That's what happened. And suddenly the church didn't have any pastors. And so they formed a search committee, and my father was the chairman. And for the next three years, three years, every candidate they brought before the church was voted down. Three years, they couldn't get along. And finally, I'm telling you, out of desperation, They had a pastoral intern, and they made him the pastor. And the church grew, and the church shrunk. And the church grew, and the church shrunk. We are three and a half decades down. I've had four family members on that staff. And the church shrinks, and the church grows, and the church shrinks, and the church grows. I got it backwards this way. (laughs) You know how it is. And that church has been less effective than it could because of one word, disunity. And that's reality in the church I grew up in, which I still have a lot of family. And here we have this church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, Alexandria trained. I follow Cephas. I follow Peter. Or the real spiritual ones, I follow Christ. And we'll learn in a moment they're not so spiritual after all. And let me mention the elephant in the room. 
it could easily happen to us. It could. It hasn't. May it not, but it could. <coughs> Steve and I just came from a tradition service. They worship slightly differently. We also have four campuses, one in Merrill and one in Marathon and one in Weston and one here and two services that are contemporary here. We have a little bit larger staff and it would be very easy for people to divide based on campus or divide based on staff. Someone might say, I follow the diaper gang. We got about seven of these guys. They, they waddle around in huggies. They are amazing pastors. I pinch myself. I do. I pinch myself. How did we get such godly men, so mature in the word, exhibiting Christ-likeness? And then we have the spiritual sisterhood. <coughs> These are my co-workers that, that are female. They're uber-competent. They do incredible things. They do ministry in God-honoring ways, and we are blessed. Then we got the godly geriatrics. That's like Dave and Dan. Who doesn't want to be around Dave and Dan? I mean, I got to tell you, I got the best office. You know, I'm right next to Dave. He walks by and he sings hymns. And he walks by and he sings hymns. And sometimes he leaves his door open and I can hear him praying and it just blesses my heart. Who doesn't want to be around a Dan or a Dave? And then we have the wonderful worshipers, whether it be Brian or Brian or Jeff or Dan who's coming to the Merrill campus. I mean, these guys sing like canaries. You know, in our staff meeting, we sing a song. Not all of my coworkers sing like canaries. A few of them sing like crows, and a couple of them look like crows, just saying. So without defining who those individuals are, one of the things I just want to talk about is the, one of the things that makes Highland staff work so well is unity. It's unity. It's a commitment to serve together. It's a humbleness of heart that we are continually improving and sharpening ourselves to do it even better. And there's a sense as well that we hold each other accountable in a gracious, God-honoring way. But overarching on all of that is the commitment that collaboratively, ultimately, any of us serving at Highland is never about ourselves. Serving at Highland is always about the Lord and serving Him. And that's what it ought to be about. Not long ago, somebody that worked for the national office of the Free Church just asked me, why is Highland a healthy church? And it's you. It's you. You don't fight over peripheral issues and secondary issues, and you make the main thing the main thing. And the second reason is our elder board. We have amazing elders who give us the playing field of how we ought to lead and cast vision and keep us accountable to it, but give us the freedom to minister. That's why Highland is fairly healthy. Now, unfortunately, this was not the case in first century Corinth in the church there. You see, the Lord blessed this church with incredible, unbelievable 
teachers and preachers. And yet somehow they took this amazing series of teachers and leaders and they took this gift of God and they converted it into rivalry. They started factious groups where each person favored one leader over another and the result was disunity among the church. Paul uses the word in in verse 10 of division, which is the word schismata, from which we derive the word schism. Now let's break down just for a few moments the different factions that were inflicting the Corinthian church as they followed these various individuals. The first faction is the Paul group. Now who doesn't want to be around Paul? I mean, the guy gives you great notes and I mean, he wrote 13 books of the Bible. The guy knows scripture. But I'm not sure that the Paul group are those that want the scripture. I think the Paul group are the founders. They're the individuals who are there day one. And if you've ever been a part of a church plant, you know that it is energizing. It's exciting. You watch God birth something. You watch something expand. You have like a million roles because you don't have enough people to go around. They're the founders. They're the individuals in 1984 that are in the Kocha living room. They're the ones that call Pastor Ken And he pastors the church for 16 years. And then Ken goes on and becomes the superintendent of the Forest Lakes District. And you hire a young 30-something out of Pennsylvania. And he comes for a while. And and then while he's here, Pastor Dan leads another group. And he plants something, a a multi-site in Weston. And then after a little while, Fellowship Bible Evangelical Free Church in Marathon They want to become part of Highland, and they get adopted, and Brian leads that. And more recently, Merrill Bible Church becomes part of Highland and are led by Adam, and they're led by Dan, a couple of those diaper gangs. And we have this this thing going on, but this is the deal. The Paul group in Corinth, they didn't allow the church to progress. They said, that's not what we had in the beginning, and they don't want any change, but that's not occurring here. We're allowed to be in 2019. You know, one of the remarkable things about Ken, he came back on staff. He never left the church. For nine years, he was the superintendent, and then he came back on staff. Can you imagine how many things over those years I might have changed? And you know how many times Ken objected to the change? None. None. He wasn't like the Paul group. He wasn't like the the church at Corinth that held everything back. He allowed us to move forward. That's the Paul group. The second factious group was the Apollos group. And Apollos was Alexander-trained, a silky smooth preacher, and there's quite a bit of contrast between he and Paul. So Paul was this heady, lots of meat type of preacher, and he really appealed to people's head. Apollos, on the other hand, was much more emotional, much more pastoral, and he appealed to people's heart. And so as you look at contemporary examples of that, uh, John MacArthur would be uh, very much like a Paul, and a Max Lucado would be very much like an Apollos. Uh, Jeff and I tend to be much more like a Paul, and pastors Sam and Andrew tend to be a bit more like an Apollos. 
But the point remains that God uses both of these styles, both, both of these bents, to bless his church. And what an amazing blessing it is when we can get a variety of teaching in a way that is God-honoring and edifying to our souls. The third group that we see is the Cephas, or the Peter group. Now, on the positive side, this is a joyfully biblical and Bible-centered group. But on the negative side, they seeped oftentimes into legalism. Now, Paul was a man who was a leather of the law. The Bible said it, he believed it, and he lived by it. And that's great, except for the times that he added extra biblical rules and regulations, which is one of the definitions of legalism. We see this as we read Acts 10 and Galatians chapter 2. In fact, in Galatians 2, we see Paul rebuking Peter for this legalistic bent that he had. Peter was championed by traditionalists who parroted the famous last words of the church, we've never done it this way and we never will. But let's imitate Peter's good side, his biblically centered, biblically joyful side, but let's maybe not imitate the side of him that seeped into legalism. Finally, there was this group that identified with Christ. Sounds like a, a noble and admirable thing, doesn't it? After all, we are Christians and we are living our lives after the model of Christ and we are being sanctified into the likeness of Christ. But that's not what was happening in, in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 1. You see, this Christ group represents in some ways spiritual loners, People that said, all I need is Jesus. I don't need any of you or any of the people to teach me anything because I have Jesus and that's it. They tended to isolate themselves and this isolation and this mindset actually caused some false humility and a pious sense of self-righteousness in their life. So in a sense, they're following the right person, but they were doing it with the wrong heart. And they also ignored the over 60 biblical passages that talked about the one another's of Scripture, that we need each other, that we learn from each other, we sharpen each other, and we ought to meet together with one another. In summary, uh, let's just consider some of the application points that we can pull from the text. We'll state the obvious for Highland. We are one church in four locations. It would be very easy for a location or a service to think that they got the best of it or they got the worst of it, they're higher or they're lower. But that's just not true. Look at the chairs you're sitting in. Comfortable, aren't they? Yeah, you ought to go over to the Merrill campus. They got serious chairs. Really comfortable. You go outside and we have no yard left. We basically used all of our parking lot. You know which campus doesn't have a playground? It's this one. The other three all do. They have room for one. We, at least to this point, have not felt like we do. But at least we have a fire pit. <laughs> well, actually, the other three have fire pits too, so that really doesn't matter. I'm really feeling like this is the loser campus. Just want you to know. We're one church, one staff that rotates, we're one elder board, we're one budget, we're one mission committee, we're one overarching vision. 
we are trying to embrace what Jesus says in Matthew 11, that the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing as forceful men lay hold of it. And it really doesn't matter if it's a different campus. It actually doesn't even matter if it's a different denomination. If it's honoring the Lord, there's got to be unity among us to advance the kingdom. The second application I see from this is individual. We've got to be careful not to guard our position or our spot. It may very well be that at some point, wherever somebody is serving, God may raise up somebody else who is more competent than us, and then we find a new area to serve. We don't hold on to what God has allowed. We bless God to continue to bless his kingdom by raising up more and more people. I love what Jesus models in Philippians 2, 5 to 7. Jeff, I added that, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. I love this because Jesus, you would think, could have said, you know what? It's not really in my best interest to go to the cross. That's going to be painful. But what actually happened is the father said to the son, I want you to do this. And that was enough. And the son saw us in all of our sin, needing someone to pay or atone for our sin. And he, being the sinless one, went to the cross on our behalf, which was the will of the father and the need of mankind. He didn't think of his own position. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. He became like a criminal being hung to a tree because he saw you and you and you. And he advanced the kingdom, and that's what God calls us to do, to see where the kingdom needs to be advanced and to fill that gap. And then when God raises someone else up to fill that gap, we go and serve in another capacity, and we're constantly blessing God to raise up additional labors. And a third way that disunity can harm the church is through gossip and divisiveness. Let me just read a couple of verses that speak to this. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28, it says, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This whole idea of building up and giving grace, this is God desiring us to address issues forthrightly with the right person and in the right context. It's not a stabbing each other in the back through argumentativeness <laughs> or through gossip. Finally, in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, it says, for, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, acknowledging that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Unity is so important that God's word says that after warning a disunifying person two times, that they ought to, they ought to be left on their own. 
This would even include removing leaders from their positions if need be. Now, at a glance, this seems like a harsh reaction, but in reality, what these texts are telling us is that this kind of disunity is actually inflicting damage onto the bride of Christ. And that is what Paul and the Lord wants to avoid at really any cost. Related but slightly different is allowing those personal preferences to become bedrock doctrines. We're not talking about compromising the Word of God. We're absolutely not compromising on the inerrancy, the truthfulness of Scripture, or divine inspiration. 1 Peter 1, 21, where God carried men along to say not what they will, but the will of God. We're not compromising on the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or the hypostatic union of Christ, fully God or fully man. We're not compromising on the gospel that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone and that we cannot earn our own salvation, that Christ needed to die and rise again to atone for our sins, that we need to believe in him. We're not talking about eternal heaven for believers, eternal hell for unbelievers. We're not talking about bedrock doctrines. We're talking about our preferences. We're talking about areas where sincere, godly, learned evangelicals could actually look at the same text and come to slightly divergent conclusions. And there's areas we need to be convinced in our heart but show charity because there tend to be non-essential issues. I love what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 23-25. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That really is the unofficial model of the free church. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. In all things, the centrality of Jesus Christ. And may that be true in my life, in your life, and as we interact with believers who may not hold everything in common, but are believers nonetheless. Let's bow in the word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for this text. We thank you for the reminder of all the blessing that comes with unity. When we're unified with you through faith in Christ, when we're unified as a body and the growth and strength that can happen, thank you also for this reminder of the destruction that disunity can also bring. And I pray that we would be wise in the way that we interact with you and with each other. And I pray, Father, that you would just continue the great work that you've begun in us in a way that links arms together as a body of Christ around the gospel and around your word so that we can continue to grow and continue to do the work that you've called us to. Thank you so much for our time in your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.